Tonight, we're going to be looking at the book of 1 Thessalonians. Let's start with a word of prayer, and we'll get right into it. Lord Jesus, we ask as we look to your word that it would not only be something that we would search, but Lord, by your Holy Spirit, that you would use it to search our hearts and our minds. Lord, we want to understand what this book says, but more importantly, Lord, we want to understand what it says to us about our relationship with you and with one another. So God, we pray for your goodness, your grace, your help in this, Lord, tonight. Um, Help our minds to be able to receive and our hearts to accept, Lord, your truth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of 1 Thessalonians, as you might suspect, was written by the Apostle Paul. He starts off by saying, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they essentially were this ministerial team that made up Paul's, uh, really the headship of Paul's uh, second missionary journey. He's writing, as he says, to the church of the Thessalonians. Thessalonica, the city which, which was known as the city the town of the Thessalonians, was one of those, uh, was a major military and commercial port located on what's known as the Ignatian Way. If you see on the highlighted map there that this was a trade route as well as a military road that connected what is called Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, with basically the uh, uh, Adriatic Sea. Uh, It was a land route uh, as opposed to going across, sailing across the Aegean. And at the heart of it was a city of Thessalonica, which today, Thessalonica, is still there. There aren't a lot of excavations because it's continued to be a city throughout all of its history so that uh, basically people don't take kindly when you bulldoze their house and start digging underneath it to find artifacts. So there isn't a lot that we can see when you visit there, but nonetheless, it's still a major trading city, a major port uh, in, in Greece today. And it was here that uh, we find Paul, somewhere during his second missionary journey around 50 AD, found himself. Uh, he had actually crossed over the Aegean Sea when we were talking about the letter to the Philippians. Paul sailed from Troas in, in modern-day Turkey across the Aegean to Philippi where he planted a church. Remember how we talked about he was arrested, beaten, and then basically imprisoned. And when he was released, he continued down the coastal route Acts 17.1 says that he went through Amphipolis and then Apollonia to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. Acts chapter 17 chronicles his encounter with the people of Thessalonica. We read, for example, that after beginning his ministry at a local synagogue, it says, as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Quote, this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Now, one of the things we see in Paul's ministry was that every city he came to, he would first go to the Jewish synagogue. And part of that was fulfillment of Jesus' command to first go to the Jews and then afterwards to go to the Gentiles. So Paul would begin his missionary efforts there. And as a rabbi, maybe not well known, but nonetheless as a visiting rabbi, he would be invited to speak to the congregation, which was the custom. And he used that occasion to begin to preach Jesus Christ and the gospel and proving it from the scriptures, which would have been out of the Old Testament writings. And so as he was doing this, we find that there's a response. In fact, it says some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did large numbers of God-fearing Greeks. 
and not a few prominent women. So that if you had gone to a synagogue in those days, you would have found that the main floor would have been basically lined with benches along the wall where the men would sit. The Jewish men would sit and the rabbi and the reader and the, and the, and the cantor and others would have been in the front administering the service. But above that, in an enclosed second story with screens on it, would have been women and also any other one who wanted to visit. As a Gentile, you could come into the synagogue, and when they began to come regularly, they referred to them as God-fearers. In other words, these are people who wanted to hear what the Scriptures said. They were hungry for God's truth, but they weren't willing to commit to Judaism fully. They didn't want to be circumcised. They didn't want to basically leave family and career and everything else to become part of the Jewish community because that's really what the cost involved. And so they would come, but they weren't committed. Many of the rabbis and the people, leaders of the synagogues, took great pride in their attachment, influence, especially when it mentions prominent women, which implies women who probably were widows but had a great deal of material substance that could be used to benefit the synagogue. And when these women heard that they could know the God of the Bible, and yet they didn't have to become Jews, they didn't have to be circumcised and do all of the things that went with it, they really immediately responded to what we would call the free gift of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This always caused a problem for Paul. After doing this for three weeks, he's given the left foot of fellowship and kicked on down the road. Uh, it says, because the Jews were jealous, and so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace you know, here we'd say down at the SDA depot, they find some guys hanging out who look kind of gnarly, and he basically, they paid them to begin to form a mob, it says, and to start a riot in the city. And so it says that the, soon the, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So Paul was forcibly fled from Thessalonica. He continued going to the city of Berea and then on to Athens, and finally, settling in what I can only say was the voluptuous city of Corinth. Corinth was one of the most powerful, important, wealthy, opulent, and immoral cities that has ever existed in human history. There it is that Paul spends the next two and a half years having extremely successful and fruitful ministry, ministering the gospel and leading many to Christ. But before he reached Corinth, when Paul was in the city of Athens, his heart began to become concerned for the church that he had to leave so quickly. I mean, think about it. You get saved, and three years, weeks after getting saved, the new church that you've just become part of has lost its pastor and all the leaders involved in the church, and you're kind of left on your own. We would expect that people would just drift away and go back to their own patterns of life. Paul knew this was very likely, and so he sends Timothy back to Thessalonica. He says in, in, in chapter 2, verse 19 of, of the letter of 1 Thessalonians, he says, when we could stand it no longer, we sent Timothy to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials. Have you ever been unsettled by a trial? Hmm? <laughs> yeah, these are pretty intense. He says, because, but yet when Timothy returns to Paul, he, he tells him that these people are standing firm in their faith despite the opposition, in spite of the persecution. He says in chapter 2, verse 6, he says, Timothy brought good news. You're standing firm in the Lord. 
And so he followed Timothy's visit with this letter, with his stated in purpose, he says in verse 12 of chapter 2, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God. So essentially what this letter seeks to accomplish is first and foremost, it's a letter of instructions to young believers. And I really think that it is a, a book that's very beneficial to somebody who is new in the faith. It really touches on a lot of basic principles of Christian living. But secondly, it's also, I think, a model of ministry for mature Christians. Because Paul, by speaking of his care for the Thessalonians, really reveals to us the heart that those who are mature in the faith should have for those who are new in the faith. In fact, one of the things I found really notable about this letter was uh, the you know passages. In fact, there are eight of them. Uh, the word know, the edo in Greek, literally means to, to have a firm grasp or understanding of something. There are these things that you know for certain. I, I break them into really three simple categories. He first of all says, you know about our character. In, in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, you know how we lived among you for your sake. And again, he gets, says in verse 5 of chapter 2, you know we never used flattery, or nor did we put a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. Again in verse 11, for you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. And then again in chapter 4, verse 2, for you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. All these things are character statements. He says, you know who we are, what our character is like. You know our integrity. You know that our heart was for you, not for your stuff. But secondly, he talks about the cross that they had to bear. He says in verse chapter 2, verse 2, you know, brothers, we had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi. And as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Now, that may seem like kind of an obvious statement, but think about it for a moment. If you shared Christ with somebody and the consequences that you're beaten, arrested, thrown in prison, and ill-treated, and then you finally get out, how anxious are you to have the next opportunity to share that message again? The normal response is if we just get an angry look or a harsh comment is just to keep our, keep our thoughts to ourselves and yet Paul says, you know that in spite of all of that, we still came to you knowing that we're probably going to experience the same response yet again. Because he says to them that in, in verse 3 of chapter 3, so that no one would be unsettled by these trials, you know quite well that we were destined for them. So that Paul tells them something that I think gets overlooked in our Christian thinking today. That suffering as a consequence of my faith is something that is part of the destiny of the believer in terms of our life in this world. Most of us are pretty adverse to difficulties. You know, we, we try to do as much as we can to protect ourselves and shield ourselves from any kind of harm, mishap, or misfortune. We want to be prepared. We want to be in control. We really want to be secure and safe. And yet Paul says you have to understand that if you follow after Christ, you're going to experience hardships. There's going to be sufferings. There's going to be difficulties. There's going to be disappointments. There's going to be lost. In fact, Peter later on says in his first letter, don't think it's strange because of the fiery trials which are going to overtake you. 
Even that phrase, fiery trial, is, is really pregnant with meaning because the ancients understood that fire was probably the most painful thing you can inflict on a body. In fact, we pretty much understand that serious burns hurt so badly because they really damage the very nerve endings <clears throat> that are supposed to protect us from becoming injured. So the pain becomes deep, intense, and unceasing. And Paul says, and Peter says, and, and, and we're going to go through those kind of difficulties and those tryings of our faith, but don't think that that's somehow not supposed to happen. Now, as I say that to you, I have to admit something. I always think it's strange. Every time I go through a difficulty, I start whining and playing, why me, God? I, you know, as if it's, it shouldn't be part of my life. And Paul is trying to condition them in terms of their expectations. That if you're going to seriously walk with God, there is going to be negative things that are going to happen. And I know that's not a popular message. I know you're not sitting there saying, I'm so thankful I'm here tonight to hear this. Because the truth is we do want to do everything we can to kind of slip through without having to really face some difficulties. And yet at the same time, if we're not prepared, as Paul said to, in 2 Timothy, to endure hardships as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. You know, it's the idea that I'm going to join the Marines because it's such an easy life. You know, nobody, you never hear anybody say that. You know, they, they understand that if they go into not only the training uh, for, for that kind of service, that they're very likely to suffer danger, even death itself, in painful and difficult ways. That's an understanding. They go in the front end with that acceptance. And yet, oftentimes in Christianity, we go in the front door and we expect that all we're going to experience is goodness and happiness and everybody's going to like us and we're going to be popular and famous. And when it doesn't happen, we're going, what went wrong? I prayed, which is kind of like saying, I put my order in and I got something different. I, I asked for pleasure and I got pain. What's wrong here? I think I'll go shop someplace else. And so Paul, this was his concern for the Thessalonians. He says, I know that the temptation is just going to say, well, I'm just going to go someplace else. You know the thought pattern? When I worshiped idols, none of these things ever happened to me. <laughs> when I worshiped idols, there was a lot of fun, there was a lot of pleasure, and it seemed like everything was going smoothly, and I had friends and people liked me. And as soon as I decided to follow Jesus, well, basically the wheels came off the handcart, and life has become painful and difficult. Why don't people do that? Why don't you do that? I mean, you think it. You may whine and complain about it and all the rest. But at the end of the day, you kind of pull yourself together and say, you know, I can't really choose to do anything else. It's like when Jesus turned to Peter after the multitudes had left him. And he looked at the 12 and said, do you want to leave also? And Peter says, where else shall we go? <laughs> You have the words of eternal life. There, there's no place else to go. Why, what, what would we choose? Someone could say, well, you could go back and become a fisherman. You had a house, a family. You had a couple of boats. You had a lifestyle. You had a career. You had all these things going for you. You can just go back and do that. But somehow, he was ruined for that. And that's the reality. When you truly meet Jesus, even though you, in my, your mind you're saying, I could go back, you know you can't because you've been ruined for that thing. You've been set aside and your life is on a new trajectory. You're, you're going down a path that's not easy, but it's real. 
And it's true, and it's purposeful, and it means something, and it matters. And in the end, it fulfills you in ways that nothing else could possibly do. So that all of that, though, comes to the third thing, that not only does he talk about their difficulties and also their character, but he talks about Christ's coming. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 2, he says, For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And this is one other thing that's notable, not just the you know passages, of which there are eight, but every chapter, all the five chapters end with reference to the second coming of Christ. The perusia is the Greek word here. This idea, uh, it's an interesting word because it means a visible arrival. It's not some kind of, you know, the clouds of your mind parting and suddenly you become Christ conscious. No, he's talking about the visible appearing of Jesus so that when Jesus stood on the Mount of Olives after his resurrection and he ascended up into heaven and the angel said to his disciples, as you saw him leave, so shall he one day return. It's the visible, physical reappearing of Christ upon the earth to set up his millennial kingdom. And so we find that this becomes the, the really the anchor point for everything that Paul says, which is important instruction for you and I as followers of Jesus. Because what really anchors you in Jesus? I, I love what, what John said in 1 John 3, 3. He talks about the second coming of Christ. We're looking for Christ's coming. And he says, and every man who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. The key word there is actually hope. What is your hope? What is, your hope is the thing that anchors you to wherever it is you are in your life right now. It's what holds on to you. So that you may be in a relationship, you may be in a career, you may be in some geographical location, and when you ask the question, what holds you to that place or to that thing or to that person, the answer is, it's what I'm hoping in. I'm standing here because I'm believing that as a consequence of standing in this space, something is going to come into my life that is going to enrich it and make it more fulfilling. And what Paul essentially was telling the Thessalonians, listen, it's not going to come through career. It's not going to come through human relationships. It's not going to come through uh, wealth or pleasure or prosperity or popularity or anything you want to name. It's going to come from one thing. It's going to come when Jesus Christ appears and he takes you home to be with him for eternity. That is the goal. And I think the fact that we lose sight of that is what gets us so entangled in so much stuff here and now. I mean, the reality is the, the, the church of Jesus Christ, at least in America, is entangled, deeply entangled in the here and now. We're caught up in whatever moment is. I mean, we lay there and lose sleep because we stayed up to listen to Trump's latest speech. You know what I mean? And we think to ourselves, him or her, there's no good option here. I mean, we go through these things. I don't want to give any indication where my political feelings go, flow, but I'm just saying, it's, it's, it's this kind of thing we, we I remember, I've told this story before, but it's one of the most classic moments of my entire life. I'll never forget it. As my mother is dying of cancer, and I'm visiting her in the hospital, and I quietly walk into her room as she's laying there still, her eyes closed, the TV on Fox News louder than any human ear should have to submit to, and I'm tiptoeing in carefully, and I sit down next to her bed, not wanting to disturb her, and without opening her eyes, she said to me, can you believe it? 
they elected that guy again. It happens to be the current occupant of the White House. (laughs) I said, Mom, pretty soon you're not going to have to worry about that at all. (laughs) You get to go home to be with Jesus, and a big smile came on her face. The first time she didn't have a political opinion. And it... (laughs) But that's, you know, it was so powerful to me because I think how we get caught up in that stuff. We get entangled and we get weighted down. And we forget that God didn't create us for time. He created us for eternity. That's the hope of my calling. That's how Paul phrased it, the hope of your calling. Your hope is what you're standing on that you look to for strength and stability and consistency in living out your Christian life. It's easy for you and I as Christians to lose sight of that hope and instead to hope that God will hear my prayer and give me what I want and fix things the way I want them to be and follow my instructions. And I have very detailed instructions for God. He's not a good reader. He keeps on missing some of the key points. But, I, but we, we live like that and we allow ourselves to be controlled and then one day we say, why am I not experiencing the joy of God in my life? Because anything you hope in in this life will ultimately bring disappointment. Anything. I'm not saying everything is bad. It's just going to disappoint you. When I was in Nashville last week, I ordered fried chicken in a restaurant. And the problem with it was the best fried chicken I've ever eaten in my entire life. My wife said, would you just keep it down? We get it. You like it. Quit going, mm, but you know what? I know I'll never eat fried chicken that will come close to that ever again in my life. <laughs> that was my chicken moment. <laughs> I'll never have another one. Everything is going to be downhill from here. And in a way, that's the way life is. Well, let's break the book down in a little more orderly fashion. It, it, it my feeble attempt to, to outline it. And I simply break into two big categories, one, the who and the how. What do I mean by the who? Basically, Paul says, this is who you are to the Thessalonians. This is who you are. In verses 4 through 6, he says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. The word literally means divinely selected. God selected you. You didn't find him. You didn't discover him. You were drawn to him, and he found you. He opened your eyes. He, he attracted your heart to him. You responded because of what he did. As Paul would say, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. God chose you, divinely selected you for himself. He goes on, and you became imitators. The word probably would be more accurate to say you just became his followers. It's interesting to me in the Gospels, 20 times Jesus gives this instruction. It's the only thing that he tells us to do 20 times over and over again, more than he tells us to love one another or any of those kinds of things. 20 times he says, follow me, follow me. What's the secret of the Christian life? Just follow me. Just follow me. Why do I read the Bible? Because in reading it, I learn about him and know better how to follow him. But in the end, I don't want to become a, a, a full of Bible knowledge. I don't want to become a biblio-idolatry, idolater, where I worship the book. I want to worship the one of whom the book speaks. I want to follow the one who 
reveals himself to me through his word. And so Paul says this, you were chosen him, and his response to having been chosen, you became imitators, followers of him. Literally, we get our word mimic from the original word that's used here. And then he adds on this a little bit, followers of us, followers of the Lord, in spite of severe sufferings. Even though it brings severe suffering into your life as a consequence. Then Paul moves beyond that opening comments to talking about who we are. That is, who he and Titus and Timothy and Silas were. And he starts in verse 5 by saying to him, you, you know how we lived among you for your sake. We lived for your sake, not for our own sake. We became other-centered in our relationship to you. Do you have any idea how rare that is? <laughs> I mean, really, how rare it is. I have a graduate degree in meism. Uh, I'm, I'm very good at being self-centered. In fact, I, it's part of my DNA. I came to it naturally. Nobody had to teach me to be self-centered. In fact, my mother convinced me I came out of the womb saying, me, myself, and I. My first words were, like most kids, no which is a declaration of independence and self-ownership. But Paul says, no, when we were amongst you, you know by watching our life that we lived for your sake. We became other-centered. How do we manifest it? First of all, he says, by our prayers. He says, we always thank God for all of you. Mentioning you in our prayers, we continually remember before our, you before our God and our Father. In fact, he goes on in chapter 3 saying, Night and day we pray most earnestly that we may see you again and supply what is lacking in your faith. But secondly, he says, you can see it in our motivation. He says, in spite of strong opposition, he says in the beginning of chapter 2, the appeal we make does not spring from error or from impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. I, I really suspect that these were things that were being said to the Thessalonians about Paul, that he doesn't know what he's talking about, he's theologically in error, that he has impure motives, he's doing it for his own selfish gain because he likes being beat up. Uh, he's trying to trick you and deceive you and all these sorts of things. But he goes on to say, we're not trying to please men, but God. We never use flattery we never put on a mask to cover up our greed. God is our witness. We're not looking for praise from men, not from you or from anybody else. You know, here's the key. It's impossible to speak truth if you're worrying about how people will respond to the truth if you speak it. The natural thing is to sugarcoat it with honey on top. But to speak the truth, even though you know it's going to cause people to react negatively to the truth, and I don't mean to be rude and offensive and so forth, but the simple fact is that if you're concerned with being a truth speaker, then you can't worry about what people are going to think when you do. Because he also goes on to say that you know us by our gentleness. Verse 7 of chapter 2, he says, we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. In verse 11, he goes, we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. That our concern was that 
natural storge love, it's called in the Greek, the, the love of a parent for a child that naturally flows. Why? Because this is my child. This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I love you. And he says, we loved you as if you were our own flesh and bone, our own body, that you shared our very DNA. And he says, and you knew because of our sacrifice. He goes on, verse 8 says, we loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. Further on, he says, surely you remember, brothers, our toil and the hardships and that we worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached to you the gospel of God. And that lastly, you know who we are by our sanctity. He says, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. You know, it's interesting because uh, one of the reasons I don't like to have Christian bumper stickers or other kind of Christian identifiers on my car is because of the way I drive. You know, I mean, I, I came to this realization the other day. I said, you know, most people think they're a good driver and everybody else is a bad driver. In my case, I don't think that for good reason. I have a wife who instructs me otherwise. But the simple fact is to, to say to somebody, you know, if you get in a car with me and we drive to Seattle and I sit there and say, you know, I'm a really good driver, you're going to be a witness of something other than that. You know, I just, I'm absent-minded. I forget... I, I don't know, it just, I have a broken speedometer that just goes up. I, I don't know why it doesn't work right. Every car I've had has the same problem. Just kind of really just, I mean, it, hit, it loves those 80, 85, 90 mile an hour things, you know. God bless the Autobahn. Quite honestly, I, a few years back, I was, had a few days in Germany. I rented a car and I was going to Wittenberg in Germany to the city of Martin Luther, and I got on the Autobahn, and um, I was going 125. <laughs> it was so sweet. <laughs> I just loved it, but it was safe because it was rainy. But, you know, one of the things about wrecks in the Autobahn, when they blow up, they blow up really good. <laughs> when they, they don't have a lot of wrecks, but when they do, man, they, they stretch out for miles. It's just really, I don't know why. But Paul, in saying all this, then moves on to the really practical aspects and says, so how should we live our lives if we are truly followers of Jesus? And I'll break this down a little more simply because first of all, he says we should be sanctified. Well, he's, what he says in verse 6, we read it before of chapter 1, he says, you became imitators of us and the Lord. Uh, in, in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, we live in order to please God. In, in verse 3 of chapter 4, it is God's will that you should be sanctified. Now, I don't know how many conversations over the years I've had with people who said, well, I just want to know what God's will for my life is. And I always love it when somebody says that because then I have this really smart aleck answer. Let me show you the passage here to tell you exactly what God's will for your life is. God's will for your life is that you be sanctified. But what does that word mean? It literally means separated for exclusive use. That God says, I chose you, I divinely selected you for myself. 
that I might use you as pleases me. Sometimes we, we get confused. We see sanctify and we think about sanctimonious. We, when we think sanctimonious, we think about religious people who are in want of a really bad bowel movement, you know? It's like they're just so uptight and just really struggling. You just want to, you know, give them a stool softener. And, but that's not what sanctified means. Sanctified means that God has, has chosen you and he's selected you. And he says, I want you to understand that you now belong to me. And that you exist as Milan and Favor put so well, he said, pleasing you pleases me. We become God pleasers. That becomes the motivation of our life. And if that's the case, as a result, that we become people secondly who are consecrated. Now, it may sound like I'm using similar terms, or maybe they're just strange terms to you, but at least in my mind, I make a critical distinction between being sanctified and being consecrated because I see a lot of people who are sanctified in the sense that they have been chosen and set aside and they understand that, but where they really struggle is the consecration, or we might just call the continuous state of surrender. You know, it's, it's like when Paul said that we need to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Some people thought that meant that you can keep on jumping off the altar when it becomes painful. It doesn't mean that. It means that we live in a continual state of surrender. And that's what I mean when I talk about being consecrated, where Paul gives examples of what that looks like. How does that practically play on my life? And he says, for example, in chapter 4, verse 4, he says, avoid sexual immorality. Drew told me he taught on that last week. I can tell your ears are still red. <laughs> avoid sexual immorality. He goes on, learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and that is honorable. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God. <laughs> it's amazing that we need to say this. I mean, that Paul would say it to the Thessalonians is completely appropriate. To the Corinthians or any other, the Greek world, the Roman world, was a world that was immersed in a kind of religiously sanctioned immorality. Temple prostitution sounds like an oxymoron, but it was part of many of the religious forms of worship. And in Paul's day, it was increasingly becoming popular in the worship of Isis and the worship of Artemis and the worship of Athena and these other goddesses who were based upon the idea of pleasure. And he said, but we have to understand that God did not create us to be people who are saturating ourselves in pleasurable experiences because if you've ever been in that lifestyle, you've discovered, you know for a fact that it only lasts a short while. It's like great fried chicken. It'll never be that good ever again because that chicken died once for me. <laughs> But that's what pleasure does. I mean, the endorphins get to a place where they no longer really stimulate, so I need to have more stimulation and more stimulation. And what happens is it leads us into a decadence that eventually no longer stimulates, but all of a sudden over time causes pain. The sexually immoral doesn't find sex satisfying. He just, or he or she just finds it addictive and a bondage. Paul said, God created us for something else. He, called, he created us for lives that were wholly given over to him. That's what holiness means. Because the idea that I belong to God, 
I'm no longer living my life to see what I can squeeze out of it for my own pleasure, but I've decided that there's nothing more pleasurable than the beauty of holiness. There's nothing more beautiful than His holiness. And out of that, he goes on to say in verse 9, love one another. <laughs> in verse 11, he says, encourage one another. Build each other up. Oh, this I love this verse. Respect. The word literally originally means to hold in high regard, to cherish, to pay attention to. Who? Those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, who admonish you. I love that passage. <laughs> hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. I'm waiting. <laughs> I shouldn't mock it because it's serious injunction. But he says, live in peace with each other and warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Whoa, did you underline that? <laughs> Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Because God is at work. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. In other words, don't quench the Holy Spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. And that's where lastly he comes to the exhortation to not only be sanctified and consecrated, but the best way I can put it is to be hope-filled. He talks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of the church. It's literally the resurrection of the body, where he says in, in verse 14, he says, we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. The dead in Christ will rise first. The question that seemed to have been bothering the Thessalonians is, we were taught about Christ coming and redeeming his church, but Uncle Harry just died last week. And so did he miss the resurrection? Is he out of the picture? Did he lose out? Because his bones are rotting away in there now. And Jesus said, you need to understand when Jesus comes, he will raise that body. Now, what happens to the soul of that individual? To the Corinthians, Paul played it very simply. He says, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So when I die, my soul will go to be with God, but my body will be still moldering in the ground someplace <clears throat> until he comes and he will call the dead first. Now, in writing to the Corinthians, Paul explain to us how the resurrection of the body works. He said, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. He says, all I know is that this physical man is put in the ground and then God calls forth something that's eternal. It's a, it's a body like your body, but it's transformed. It's changed. Some suspect that God simply reconfigures the DNA of each and every one of us that is unique as, as everything is. But however it works, and it is a mystery, but he's going to call those who have died up from the grave and their soul and their spirit is going to be reunited with their bodies and so they shall ever be with the Lord. It's going to be a different body, Paul told the Corinthians. It's so sown, he said, like seed in the ground in mortality, but it is raised immortal. It's part of the terrestrial, but it become part of the celestial, literally the heavenly. 
The way I like to put it is that the, when I get my new body, the lust of my flesh is going to be to do the will of God. I mean, it's, it's, it's not going to be any work. You know how easy it is to lust in the flesh? I mean, I can't even describe you the struggle a chocolate eclair creates in my life. You know, you just look at it and go, oh, my goodness gracious. I'll take a dozen. No, make that two. You know, it's, it, it, it's just so easy to go there. When they closed the Godiva store at the downtown, well, it was so sick and wrong. So sick and wrong. I had a pattern in my life that was broken. It didn't take any work at all for me to lust after a truffle. What was hard is not eating four. Yeah, tell me about it. In reality, he says, in that day, my new body is that the yearning of my heart is going to be to praise God. So when you read in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, and everybody's standing around the throne of God going, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, it says, day and night for all of eternity, they're praising and worshiping God. And I'm thinking to myself, that sounds tiring. <laughs> that sounds exhausting. How do you keep that up? And the answer is because it's coming from a totally different being than you are right now that the most pleasurable thing it'll be by, like drinking in the most beautiful libation that's ever been made. You'll be drinking in the presence of God. In fact, I had a very dear friend of mine who actually died of cancer. She was down to 80 pounds. Husband finally came in the bathroom. He was giving me a phone call, came back in. She's, she had expired, called the ambulance, pulled her out of the bed, laid her down on the floor, and he went out to meet the ambulance. They came back in, and she's sitting up She'd vomited up this stuff and it just burned a hole right through the floor. And she got up. They took her to the hospital. They couldn't find a trace of cancer. And that was 60 years ago. She's still alive. Amen. Never had a recurrence of cancer in the rest of her life. But she told me, she said, I died and I went into the presence of the Lord. And she said, it was like Music was like water that was flowing through the very cells of my body. She was a very gifted musician. She said it was an experience. She said it was so profound that I struggled for years with suicide because I knew what heaven was. And when things got really hard here, it was easy to want to escape. But she said she saw the Lord and the Lord gave her a choice. You can go back and raise your kids or you can come home. She said, I need to go home and raise my kids. And like that, she was back. One day that's going to happen to you and me. We worry about death. Paul says, I don't want you, told the Thessalonians, I don't want you to be grieving over death like people who have no hope. Yeah, I know, it's all right to cry at a funeral. I've always said that if, if, if moms can cry over their five-year-old going to school, we should be able to cry over our moms, our dads, our kids, our loved ones who pass from this life and go to be with the Lord because we miss them and we love them and we want to be with them. And one day we will be and we'll be fixed. That everything that is not right about you will be fixed forever. Amen. Because he says, Paul said, but don't worry about it. Secondly, in verse 17, we who are still alive when the Lord comes and are left will be caught up. 
It's where we get the, the Latin term is rapturos, which means to be raptured, where we get our word raptured. Literally, we will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That's why Paul's closing exhortation. In chapter 5, verse 2, he says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying peace and safety. Destruction will come on them suddenly. Uh, the word suddenly, originally, that's used there in the original, means unexpected and unforeseen. You won't be able to say, okay, I see it coming. In fact, I, I, I don't mean to be unkind, but when, when people say, well, do you think the blood moons are the sign? And we, we start getting into all this kind of speculation. Well, we have this feast, and there's this thing and that thing. And, and as I told a dear friend of mine one time, I said, if you and I can figure it out, then it's not the day. <laughs> because it's going to come unexpectedly. It's unforeseen. It's going to catch the whole world off guard. He says, the only difference is, he says, we are not of the night. We are of the day. Let us not be like others, he said, who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. In other words, live your life with your sight clear. Don't allow yourself to be distracted and caught up and lose sight of what your life is all about. It's about Jesus coming and take you home. You will not find the answer to your life in the bookends of birth and death. You find the answer and the purpose and fulfillment in your life in what comes after your death. That's where the rewards are handed out. That's where the crowns are given. That's where the, the accomplishments and the things that you have done and experienced and suffered and sacrificed all come to fruition. They come in that day when we're before the Lord. Now, you might be one of those people who say, well, I'm not into that pie-in-the-sky stuff. All I can say to you is, <clears throat> this will come as a shocking report, one day you're going to die. It's, uh, in fact, they've found that birth is the leading cause of death. <laughs> it's going to happen. And it doesn't take a, a physicist to figure out that death lasts a lot longer than birth or life and everything in between, it is eternal, it is forever. Are you ready? Father God, I pray that you would open our hearts to your word, that its truth would resonate within our souls, that we would hear on a level that is beyond just the auditory nervous response, but Lord, we would hear with ears of the Spirit deep in our souls. God, that we might hear you speaking to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise Jesus. Why don't we stand as Linda leads us in a closing song.